Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. All right. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. And we are finally doing this massive topic that we actually get a lot, a lot of emails about. And today we're looking at pregnancies and birth for women who've used assisted reproductive technologies. We're going to call it ART, assisted reproductive technologies, or IVF. So we may use those terms interchangeably and just kind of bundling the terminology in for the sake of helping the conversation to flow. So sorry if you know all the little finer details of all the different IVFs and ARTs, this could be frustrating, but that's what we're going to do because we've got one hour. (laughs) And frustration alert. We need to have frustration alerts. We're not doing trigger alerts. We're doing frustration alerts. For anyone feelings alerts. You might have big feelings alerts with this one if this is you. That's a really, yeah, that's a really considerate, nice thing to do. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you've got big feelings about doing that. Let's get into it. (laughs) Everyone who's big feelings has now shut off the podcast. Uh, Yes, so that's what we're talking about. Women who have successfully become pregnant using this technology. And today we are not discussing the ethics of assisted reproductive technology or the process or the medicines involved. We're pretty much going to discuss from the point that you discover that you're pregnant through an ART process that was successful. And now it's a time for you to choose what to do next and what is the plan for the rest of your pregnancy. We obviously cannot cover every single little detail of every possible complicating factor that's got to do with IVF. This is going to be broad strokes. And for those who have already signed up to the Great Birth Rebellion Information Hub or the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, you guys have access to ask more questions and get more detailed answers. And we can keep having this discussion in the assembly. But if you're if you aren't in the membership in that membership, this is what you get for now, but also the resource list. And it's a big one. So there's a lot of research that we've tapped into. So please go ahead, use the resources that you get if you're on the mailing list for the for the podcast. All right. So, I mean, to start with, I'm laying down some ground rules here. Sorry, B, I'm doing like a full disclaimer on this one. <laughs> um, so, so ART or IVF pregnancies are considered to have more chance of having complicating factors and we're going to talk about the research around that and we're going to talk about the reasons why many clinicians believe that women who have assisted pregnancies require medicalized obstetric care and they're often encouraged away from midwifery care options so we're going to talk about that today people that have been messaging us they want to know if they need extra ultrasounds if they've had an IVF pregnancy if you should be induced Do you need to take aspirin? There are so many things that are imposed on women who become pregnant using assisted reproductive technologies. And often it's by way of process and policy rather than looking at the nuance and individual needs of the woman. And before we continue, I also want to flag a little change that you might notice in the resource folder. So 
If you're not yet on the mailing list for this podcast, you can get on the mailing list for this podcast and the people who are on the mailing list get uh, a big resource folder that's full of information that we've used to, that we use to research each episode. Uh, In the past, we've been providing full text articles and PDFs. And so it's really easy for you to go find. It cuts out the hassle, which is kind of what we were aiming for. But this does mess with the algorithms that journals have set up to track engagement for their authors. And authors are sometimes rewarded on how much engagement their articles get. So by us providing PDF that affects their impact rating because the number of times people click on the access link is kind of how they get rewarded. So we want to respect that process and avoid breaking any copyright rules. So we're providing the resource list as a list of links instead of PDFs. So that's the change we're going to make. So the the, um, resource folder might be a bit jumbled at the moment as we take down things and put new things up. So there's a bit of transition period. But anyway, we're going to be above board, law-abiding researchers and respect authors' work, but also try and give you as much access as we possibly can to research. Okay, so a few basic assumptions that we have when it comes to the ART and IVF pregnancies. So what often happens is that when a woman becomes pregnant through assisted reproductive technologies, they are referred to an obstetrician for ongoing care. This might not be for everyone, but often you go through a a clinic and then when you're pregnant, they give you the phone number for an obstetrician and that's to become your care provider. So I want to be super clear that this episode assumes that every single woman, regardless of her circumstance, should have and or pursue midwifery continuity of care as a basis for their care. It should be a starting point for every woman to have their own midwife. And I don't believe that a referral to obstetric care should ever be the starting point for maternity care. All women should have a midwife. And some also need a doctor, but not the other way around. So there you go. First controversial statement of the podcast today. So this practice of IVF clinics assisting women to become pregnant and then immediately referring them to their associated or affiliated obstetricians for ongoing pregnancy care, I think it has to stop. I think it's a problematic initial step because it immediately medicalizes the whole rest of the pregnancy for that woman. So just because you became pregnant with the assistance of medical technology, it doesn't mean that the rest of your pregnancy has to also be medicalized. But I just want to add in a little bit of depth in there because I do speak to people who have had this and have birth trauma from their experience. And a lot of the comments they'll make are, I just went with the obstetrician that was recommended to me. I mean, this happens with GPs with pregnancies that have been spontaneously conceived and not conceived with medical assistance. So this happens across the spectrum, but I hear it a lot with IVF pregnancies and there's a a couple of things that uh, maybe facilitates this from the family's point of view, why they actually accept that care. But what I often hear is, well, it was recommended to me and so I just went with it. Regardless of who your care provider is, it's always your choice whether you continue to see them, whether you're 38 weeks pregnant or eight weeks pregnant. It's really about finding the person that's right for you. But I think why this becomes super hard for many people and why they go with the recommendation is often that person is already known to them. 
um, or they've really trusted the service that's assisted them to get pregnant and so they trust the recommendation. And a lot of the time uh, with a private obstetrician, people will often say, they were just so lovely or they are so lovely or I really liked them. And that is fine. You can really like them and your philosophies may not align. You need to like them and your philosophies need to align. That is key. And I think after birth, people often reflect and go, my philosophy was different to my care providers. And actually it was a really conflicting thing or something that I didn't actually come to understand because I really liked them. And because they really like the person, they want them there. But actually their intentions are very different or their philosophies are very different. So just because you like somebody doesn't mean they're the right care provider for your pregnancy. And just because their philosophy is aligned in your conception period doesn't mean that they will align throughout pregnancy and birth. So yeah, the evidence says that all women need to have a midwife that just adds associated with better outcomes regardless now we're seeing beautiful evidence that shows that actually people of higher risk need even more support and the best way to get that support is with midwifery continuity of care but yeah I think it can be really tricky for people who've been in a really vulnerable situation they're just they're finally pregnant they're so grateful that they are and so they're in a vulnerable situation and so they're more open to recommendations or going with somebody that they already know that already knows their story and they already trust them so really hear you if that's you or that has been you in the past and if you're wanting a high intervention pregnancy and birth if you are someone who feels like you need all the ultrasounds you want the induction or you want an elective cesarean then that model of care is definitely going to be more aligned with you and it's not about what we want it's about what you want so you know the first step here is to really work out well what do I need out of this pregnancy and what do I want acknowledging that they're different and what is my philosophy here is my philosophy that I can go on and uh, have this baby in a physiological way and that's what I want support in because that's not going to be for everyone I think it depends like because we spoke about the, this medicalization spectrum way back in episode two about aligning your philosophies with your care provider. And even for women who are planning a cesarean section, the care that you get through your pregnancy is so unique with a midwife. And it, you don't discount yourself from having an elective cesarean section because you've got a midwife. You could hire a midwife and say, I intend, and I've had clients like this for various reasons, either require or intend to have a cesarean section, but they can still have midwifery antenatal care and have this beautiful quality, educational, a uh, lot of time given kind of antenatal care. Even Emotional if support, really. That's the big yeah. part of it. Yeah. It's and the education and the emotional support and the an appointment that is more than seven minutes long or eight minutes long. And even feeding preparation in pregnancy and, you know, all these things that that won't be discussed with an obstetrician. And so I think we've got to remember that obstetricians are medical people that midwives will refer you to if your pregnancy falls out of the midwifery scope, but they're not the the starting point of maternity care. Sometimes you need them. when if if pregnant if the pregnancy is is abnormal and pathological absolutely that's their scope they are way better than midwives at that our job as midwives is to look after women 
and then refer to more specialized services as as required rather than have a specialized service be like the next step and completely skipping over the idea that every woman should have access to midwifery care. They're not the experts of everything and so we're going to refer when that's needed. Yeah. And so I guess I that's still the philosophy that I that we're going to start with this with this episode. We're not assuming that IVF pregnancies should automatically be into this high risk category because there's so much that impacts the risk factors that are applied to IVF and we will we'll chat through those but I feel like we can confidently individually assess women for which model of care would be most appropriate to their needs not just see IVF or ART and go right that means you have an obstetrician that you completely bypass the option of midwifery care. So that's where I want to start. So if you've had an IVF pregnancy and you're thinking, oh man, now that's it, I've got a high-risk pregnancy and I'm going to need medical care, medicalized care the whole time, I think you can let go of that assumption and actually pursue midwifery care and feel confident that, you know, if you need to seek higher acuity care through your pregnancy, if a complication develops, you can still access, access that. Yeah. So yeah, that was the first thing we wanted to mention is just about how you still have a choice. Even if you've used medical technology to get pregnant, you don't necessarily need medical technology and medicalized care to continue the pregnancy. No woman or baby dyad is the same. And so there should never be like a standard routine practice applied to every woman without a good reason. And I think the same thing goes for IVS pregnancies. And Modern maternity care IVF, for IVF pregnancies, women are labelled as high risk and then women are just sent down a management path and it doesn't ask questions about her unique needs. It just sees this label and then it gives care according to a set process and procedure. Like I call it birth by numbers. It's like, oh, IVF, you go into this box. And if you don't rebel against that and ask questions about that, the natural flow of your care will involve obstetricians, routine ultrasounds, extra screening, possibly extra medicines um, like aspirin, monitoring and management and early induction and so on and so on. Like that's the natural flow of how an IVF pregnancy will be managed. And unless you ask questions about that and make decisions that are different, that's kind of the natural flow of what will unfold in your pregnancy if you don't put the brakes on and look for other directions. And Finally, so this is my last kind of disclaimer thing, that your age, your history, your reason for requiring medical assistance to get pregnant, your health before you were pregnant, the type of reproductive technology you used, they all change and affect the complexity or simplicity of your pregnancy. So no reproductive technology is the same and actually depending on what type you had can change the risk factors and no two pregnancies are the same regardless of how you got pregnant. So it's okay to pick and choose what you want through your pregnancy even if you used reproductive technology. We are also not going to be covering extensive stats on twin and multiple pregnancies in this episode. We do have a twins episode with Dr. Stu Fishbane that we did if we were look at if we were to look at the research on all IVF pregnancies, and um, we do see that twins and multiples are more likely, and that there's some unique risks associated with that. So for this episode, we are concentrating on singleton 
IVF or ART pregnancies. Yeah, I just, I really loved how you said put the brakes on um, because I think often the journey with IVF can be a monstrous one and then all of a sudden you're finally pregnant and it can be one big process that just keeps feeling like for some people it's snowball, 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 and then it's not till the postpartum where the brakes get put on. So just really uh, highlighting the value of the pause at all times in life, but especially that pause between the IVF journey finishing and the pregnancy starting and just that reset of, okay, this is a, whilst it's a continuation, it's also a new experience and what do I want it to be? You know, there can be a lot around what we make IVF mean for us and the stories that we hold and then how those stories continue to play out in pregnancy. And so really recommend, especially if if you're on the IVF journey right now and you're listening to this and you're not yet pregnant, big love to you, just lots of love. We see you, we send you love, we're wishing you all the best for your journey. And it's never too late to put pause on. You might be 32 weeks pregnant listening to this and going, okay, I need to pause. So just uh, highlighting the value of the pause and what can come with actually diving into what stories and belief systems you may be carrying, especially around your body. I think that is huge with IVF. There can often be a big disconnection between the body maybe some um, distrust with the body and when we're about to birth and, and mother, our body is our greatest power. And so that reconnection to it, if it feels right for you, because it can be big work sometimes. And, you know, if you're in a position where you know there's a little bit of time before you're going to get pregnant because the reproductive technology process is quite scheduled and there's appointments and there's processes, uh, there's no reason why you can't start doing your research about who you might want to be your care provider when you do get pregnant and actually allowing your mind to take you to the possibility that this process will work and that you will get pregnant. With I've had clients almost every year, somebody calls me and says, I'm about to um, go through my first IVF cycle. Can I book you um, for when I get pregnant. So that every year I've, I look after clients who've become pregnant by IVF. Sometimes it's same-sex couples. And so, you know, they're not doing it for fertility issues. And so actually having some kind of a plan for when you get offered the next step, you actually already know what your next step is after you get pregnant that you've lined up uh, where you want to go next or that you at least know the services that are available in your area so you can call them really early on and get into them before they get booked out. Beauty. Oh, well, let's dive into the research. So I found some amazing papers. And the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that if you become pregnant using ART, then the maternity care system will automatically assume that since your your conception journey was complex, that your pregnancy will also have a different level of complexity and risk to women who got uh, pregnant spontaneously. So we are interested in discussing today is if IVF pregnancies do come with unique or increased complexity, and if there is an increased chance or something might not be straightforward with your pregnancy, uh, what happens then? So current research suggests that although most pregnancies will be uncomplicated, that have been conceived through IVF pregnancies, they do have an increased chance of preterm birth, low birth weight, uh, small for gestational age. But we do have to remember that these stats are often skewed because there's an increased chance of twin and multiple pregnancies with ART treatments 
And this can skew the statistics because twins and multiples are inherently more likely to be born earlier and smaller than singletons. But the factors that may contribute to adverse effects of IVF on pregnancy outcomes actually include those related to the IVF procedure itself rather than the woman's body. So it includes medications, the lab conditions, the culture medium, the cryopreservation and thawing process. So a lot of research compares fresh embryos with frozen and thawed and the maternal conditions that are associated with subfertility or infertility so including things like being of older age or if you have reduced ovarian reserve or polycystic ovarian syndrome. So those factors can be individual, separate factors that are not specifically related to every woman's body and pregnancy. And so a lot of the research makes a clear point to say that it's often impossible to separate the individual factors that affect the risk of adverse outcomes in pregnancies that are achieved with IVF. So it makes it difficult to mitigate some of the risks associated with IVF because some of them are inbuilt into the IVF process. So it's super cloudy. We've got it. There's lots of things to consider about why you needed IVF, what assisted reproductive technology you used, and if those come with higher risks than others for, for certain things. So the first thing that women need to navigate when they've become pregnant through IVF or ART is the options for genetic testing during pregnancy. And there's often a genetic testing process that occurs with ART treatments, which may include genetic testing of the parents before the process begins and also a pre-implantation genetic screening on the baby before they even implant it. So some genetic information can be gathered before the woman's pregnant. And then there's lots of genetic testing options that the women can choose from after that. But it's important to note that the IVF procedure itself does not appear to lead to higher prevalence of chromosomal abnormalities. However, the other factors that led to the need for IVF may play a role in the increased risk for chromosomal abnormalities in these pregnancies, including women who are older. And sometimes severe male and female factor infertility can be associated with higher risk for chromosomal abnormalities. So we're not saying there's not an increased risk. We're just saying it it may not actually be because of the IVF process. It may be because of what's inherently going on anyway, that if these some of these people who became pregnant through ART uh, even if became pregnant spontaneously, would have had an increased risk of chromosomal abnormalities. And so it's not the IVF itself that can create a circumstance where babies have more chance of chromosomal abnormalities, but rather the reasons for why the IVF was required in the first place. So if you had IVF for other reasons, other than subfertility or infertility or fertility problems, then you might decide to opt out of some of the screening options that are offered to you because there's quite a lot. There are some very invasive ones, including amniocentesis and chorionic villus sampling and some less invasive screening options like the nuchal translucency ultrasound or there's the blood test, the NIPT. Sometimes they call it the Harmony test. Uh, but if we look at the stats, at the likelihood of genetic alterations for ART babies, 
The research says, quote, that the prevalence is extremely low and the absolute risk is very small. But there was a meta-analysis done where the researchers combined stats from multiple papers in their findings. So of 6,000 in this particular paper, of 6,112 ART pregnancies, nine babies were born with a genetic abnormality, which represented 0.15%. And in spontaneous pregnancies, it was 0.02%. So yeah, increased risk, but relatively small. So in yeah, so it's true that there's an increased risk, but the overall risk this paper's saying is still incredibly low. So, you know, you can use this type of information to decide if you want genetic testing or not. You might want to opt out of some things, or you might feel really confident in the pre-implantation genetic testing that you might want to opt out of some of the early screening options, or depending on your history and what you're particularly concerned about, you might decide to take it all on. I just want to reiterate there, I think a lot of people just do things because it's normal procedure without, again, pausing and thinking about, is this right for me? Do I actually want it? Um, and a lot of people have no idea that they can actually say no and opt out of things. Um I mean, everything should be an opt-in, but often it actually feels more like an opt-out. So just highlighting there, really tuning in to you. Is this something that's right for me? Is it a full body? Yes. What would I do with the information? So just remembering there's, you know, you don't have to people please. And and I really want to highlight here, people often don't understand that people-pleasing is a part of the sympathetic nervous system. Most of us, the majority know about flight or fright. We're starting to understand freeze more, but really that fawn part of the flight, fright, freeze or fawn system is huge. And so the fawn part is where we actually befriend people. It's a huge part of the good girl syndrome, and I see it in pregnancy, birth, and postpartum massively for women. I feel like so many women, in when they're sympathetically dominated, so when they're feeling at stress or, you know, would, would normally they're not actually fighting, they're not fighting, they're fawning. Um, and so they're making friends with people and doing what other people expect of them in order to stay safe. So you're the boss, come tapping into your queen energy, that beautiful power and going, is this right for me? Um, and if it is, great. And if it isn't, great. It's it's about you. Yeah, and not accepting like, well, an answer of like, why do I need this test? Oh, because you had IVF. That's not a suitable answer. You want to know what particular risk factors do I have that would warrant this test? And also really understanding the flow and effects of what happens. Yeah. And there are some genetic tests that are more risky than others. So if the important is if the if the information is so important that you to you that it would change the course of what you choose you might opt for potentially a higher risk test. But yes, basically you've got options for genetic testing. Same, like, let's forget the fact that you had a baby by IVF. You still have the same freedoms to choose and decide what kind of test you're going to have and why and if they apply to your specific circumstance. The, the general thought is, yes, babies who are conceived by IVF have an increased risk of physical or congenital malformation. So that means that they're born with something due to altered development in utero and there was a meta-analysis done on this in 2018 and they looked at 38 studies 
and they pull the results to create a really handy table of stats that can help. It can help parents decide if these numbers are big enough to warrant the extra checks that they might be offered. So the, the meta-analysis did demonstrate that there are associations between IVF and congenital malformations. Although it remains unclear, so the paper says, it remains unclear if this association is because of infertility, factors associated with the procedure, or both. So they can't differentiate if it was IVF or if it was something inherently in the person's body that caused these things. So when they pulled all of the estimates, they they got the total numbers per 10,000 births. So for IVF pregnancies, and the number of babies per 10,000 that were born with a congenital or physical malformation, so 10,000 births, 400 and roughly 476 babies conceived by IVF had a congenital malformation. Compared to with spontaneously conceived babies, 317 per 10,000. So IVF, 476, spontaneous 317 per 10,000 births. So, yeah, so there's 158 baby difference in 10,000. But not all organ systems are equally affected. So they this paper very conveniently divided up the stats. And some of the malformations are less severe, some more severe. And you can see, you know, so for example, cleft lip or palate, um, IVF pregnancies, uh, 1.3 per thousand. Um, but that's versus the naturally occurring pregnancies, 1.2. So not a huge risk. Ear, neck, face alterations, IVF pregnancies, 1.7 per 1,000 pregnancies. In naturally occurring pregnancies, 1.5. Central nervous system alterations, no difference. Both 1.7, whether IVF or not. Respiratory system alterations, same, 0.8 for both groups. Gastrointestinal, 3.8 babies per 1,000 versus 2.5 per 1,000 for IVF versus naturally conceived. Musculoskeletal alterations, so 11 per 1,000 for babies conceived through IVF, 8.1 for babies conceived spontaneously. Uh, Urogenital, so uh, urinary tract and genitalia, uh, 10.9 per 1,000 IVF, 6.4 per 1,000 for naturally conceived babies. And cardiovascular alterations, 5.7 in 1,000 compared to 5.2 in 1,000 for naturally occurring pregnancies. So so we're talking like 0.0 something percent for many of these. Yeah, so super tiny. So, yes, statistics, like there is an increase, but understanding how much the increase is helps parents to decide how much intervention, screening, and checking they're going to do so yeah it it kind of helps bring things into perspective and a lot of these things can be checked off like if you for example had the 18 to 20 week morphology scan a lot of these things can be checked in one test rather than going for multiple different screening you could bundle a lot of checks into for example a morphology scan so one other thing that occurs with IVF pregnancies is placental alterations. So 
we had an episode, what episode was it, that we talked about uh, abnormal placental, uh, sorry, abnormal cord insertions. And the risk of velamentous and marginal cord insertions is higher in IVF pregnancies. But we can check all that in ultrasounds that you would routinely have anyway in any pregnancy. So rather than having extra special tests because you had IVF, these things can be more thoroughly checked if you've had a, having an IVF pregnancy rather than having something specific. Any care provider can give you a referral for these. So if you're a care provider looking for after a woman who's had IVF, knowing that there can be a slight increase in congenital abnormalities, that there's an increased risk of placental abnormalities and implantation that you could specifically list on the referral, you know, IVF pregnancy, please check and then list all the extra things that you want them to make sure they do in this single ultrasound if that's what the women are choosing. So things like placenta previa, uh, bilobed placentas, vasa previa where the vessels actually come across the cervix or the sort of in front of the presenting part of the baby, increased risk during IVF. But all of these things can be checked. Placenta recreta, all these things can be checked by ultrasound. So yeah, might be an increased risk, but if they go, oh, look, you're in an increased risk of placenta things, you should have an obstetrician. It's like, oh, actually, maybe I should just make sure I check that on ultrasound. So let's talk about the use of extra ultrasounds for women who've got IVF pregnancies. <laughs> Bee's eyebrows just went up. She's like, so there's, if you have a, a pregnancy conceived by IVF or ART, you're likely to be given what we call serial ultrasounds, so repetitive sort of routine ultrasounds all the way through your pregnancy. Um, they might want to do multiple scans to track the growth of your baby because women who do have IVF due to female fertility issues may have problems with things, I hate the wording, but cervical competency. They call it incompetent cervix. It's the worst word ever, but that's how we understand it. And they're often prescribed progesterone, pessaries, and some practitioners want to do more frequent checks on cervical length by ultrasound. So again, they might want to give you another ultrasound to check the length of your cervix. So it's important to discern that if this is a risk factor for you. So like if you've had IVF because your partner has fertility issues and it's not you, you might forego repetitive ultrasounds. Whereas if you've had repetitive pregnancy loss, you're having trouble holding on to a pregnancy because your cervix isn't lengthening and closing as it should, then this might be a good test for you. This might be good screening for you so that you can have early intervention, but it's not for everyone. And the other thing that they will want to give you ultrasounds for is fetal growth. Currently, the optimal gestational age for fetal growth scans and their frequency in the IVF pregnancies, we don't really know. That's the only reason they said you had IVF pregnancy, therefore you need to have multiple ultrasounds. Uh, the research suggests that we actually don't know if that's a good idea. But I would recommend looking at, we did episodes 29 and 30 where we talk about the pitfalls of growth scans. So we're not going to revisit the idea of scanning big or small babies. But if you go back to episodes 29 and 30, that will speak to the research about the use of ultrasounds to check on fetal size and the benefits of repeat ultrasounds for that. So your practitioner might suggest growth scans. 
But I do think that this is not necessarily for all people. And again, depends on the reasons that you needed IVF in the first place. All right. How much more have I got left here? I'm nearly at the end, B. All right. Now, this is the biggie. This is what people ask about. Induction of labour for IVF pregnancies. Seems like they just want to induce everybody regardless of any risk factor anyway. So a lot of people are on board with 39-week inductions just because. And any risk factor that gets presented, they go, yeah, great. IVF, yep, 39 weeks for sure. Let's induce you. And our culture is very on board with induction as well. It's become very normalised. So we don't question it as much. But, I mean, if you're here, you're probably starting to question things a bit more. It's getting out there. I reckon it's... So induction of labour for IVF babies. Lots of women will be encouraged to have an induction around 39 weeks because of the increased risk of stillbirth. So your practitioner might tell you that your risk of stillbirth doubles or triples if you become pregnant by IVF and they are not wrong. But in low-risk, singleton, full-term pregnancy, so if IVF was your only complicating factor and the rest of your pregnancy has just proceeded normally, the number of stillbirths in spontaneously conceived babies is 0.1%. And the rate of stillbirth for IVF-conceived pregnancies that are low-risk, that otherwise have no complicating factors, 0.3%. 0.3%. So 0.1. It triples. It triples. It, it triples. That's what they'll say. You have an increased risk of stillbirth because you've done IVF. They're not wrong. It triples or some papers say. Wrong. It it's just the language used around it has a very different effect in our nervous system. So if you hear your risk triples, oh, makes my heart race. I get a bit scared. If they tell me my risk increased, I'm like, well, probably I don't get as scared as tripled, but increase gets me a little bit more tense. And then if they say from 0.1 to 0.3, my nervous system calms down a lot. Yeah, you take a big breath out and you go, oh, okay. Well, maybe you don't and that's okay too. But this is really about, and this is for anyone at any point, when people use the word increased risk or triples or doubles, say, thank you very much, I need more information. What is the actual stat? And if they can't give it to you, what that means is they've been using that language because it's been passed on to them. Um, Or they read research a really long time ago and they're not on top of the research. And that is okay because not all of us, especially when we're clinical, it's hard to be on top of the research. But this is their opportunity, thanks to your beautiful questioning, to go and find out that information and be giving information in a much more digestible way without the fear language associated with all the drama, right? Like increased risk, drama, triples, drama. We want information without judgment and fear Yeah, or and drama then, and fear. And there's layered complexity too because then – clinicians are going okay this is an IVF pregnancy therefore there's an increased risk of stillbirth also this woman might have needed IVF because she's 46 and the older you get the increase 
the more risk you have of stillbirth. Also, every week she goes beyond 39 weeks, we know that the stillbirth rate increases naturally anyway for any pregnancy. So clinicians are layering these sort of risk factors and going, oh, man, she had IVF. Oh, man, she's 46. Oh, my gosh, she's now 41 or 40 40 weeks. And and the, the complexity layers. And we actually are really crap at working out the actual risk that people are at. We don't, we can't tell each woman, like, this is your chance of having a stillbirth when you layer these complex risk factors on top of each other. And so we don't know. So to satisfy our own fears and uncertainties, we're suggesting a 39-week induction. And that's ass covering. So that's like if anything happens to you or your baby and somebody turns around and goes and starts to question the care of your care provider, they can say, nope, I did everything I was supposed to do. I offered her a 39-week induction and so I followed all the rules and therefore I can't get in trouble. So we actually don't have very good ways of working out what your actual chance of things happening is and so they will just offer you the option that feels safest to them. But you've got to choose the option that feels safest to you. We also did the induction of labor episode, episode 33 with Hannah Darlin. So I think go ahead and have a look at that as well if you're facing the decision of having to decide whether or not you're going to have an induction of labor at 39 weeks. But current research suggests that this is a quote from one of the papers. It's currently unknown whether elective delivery at 39 weeks of gestation reduces the risk of maternal morbidity and improves perinatal outcomes in pregnancies achieved with IVF when compared to expected management. And there was a systematic review of published randomized control trials. And that said that in asymptomatic, uncomplicated singleton pregnancies, induction of labor between 39 weeks and 40 and 7 does not increase the risk of cesarean section delivery when compared to expectant management, but it it also doesn't reduce the rates of adverse perinatal outcomes, including um, death, low APGAR scores, and the need for neonatal intensive care. So the current recommendation that is in the absence of studies focused specifically on timing of delivery for pregnancies achieved with IVF, it's recommended that shared decision-making between women and healthcare providers when considering induction of labour at 39 weeks is what is the current suggestion. It's not you should have one. It's we don't really know. So you guys chat amongst yourselves about what you want and what you feel like you need and make a decision based on that. And that is all of the writing that I did around IVF pregnancies. And there is like two pages of links for people to read the article at the top of the resource page was brilliant and you can click on all the little research papers that they used in the paper and actually keep going down all little rabbit holes that you want to find there depending on what your circumstance is for IVF pregnancies but take home message is just because you needed medical assistance to get pregnant it does not mean that you are going to need medical assistance to stay pregnant and have a healthy and normal pregnancy and birth. That you deserve midwives just as much as everybody else does. And that just because you require technology before 
does not mean your body's not going to function now through the pregnancy because there's lots of different reasons that people have IVF and we need to take a nuanced and detailed and individualised approach to every single pregnancy, including ones that are conceived with assistance. And routine induction simply based on IVF is not evidence-based. Correct. And correct. Simply based on IVF and not evidence-based, you've got to consider the entire picture. Why did? Why couldn't you conceive in the first place? Are there pre-existing health conditions? You know, is there something else that layers your risk? What do you want? You know, all these things. And the other one was aspirin, which I didn't talk a lot about. But there are papers in the resource folder which talk about how if IVF is the sole reason that your clinician is recommending aspirin, there's not really research to support that. There there has to be other factors that would support the use of aspirin in pregnancy, not just IVF in itself. I should throw that in there. Yeah, it's big, right? People have IVF and, I mean, everyone comes to it so differently. They're same-sex couples who are otherwise healthy and that is their means of getting pregnant. Like it's such a broad spectrum of people who access this technology and therefore, you know, really having these routine policies to cover everyone um, when they're not evidence-based, you've got every right to question them and question whether they're right for you. And I think, yeah, that's really what you've uncovered today so beautifully. So having a midwife you know, having a doula and working through whatever stories you may be holding or actually just debriefing the process of IVF as well. There may be a need for you to do that in your pregnancy in order to like process that experience fully and not just keep snowballing it into pregnancy, then birth and postpartum um, is actually processing it if it feels right for you at as each stage kind of comes along so reach out if you need some support for that you can find that on my page corenfloor.com.au there's a we're building a whole uh team of amazing birth workers and pregnancy workers to support everyone on this journey so i'm super excited about that but yeah wishing you all the best if you are pregnant and about to have a baby wishing you an epic birth and postpartum that is a full body yes and you where you get your needs met Hundred percent. And if you're currently going through some assisted technology to get pregnant, then you can make part of your journey uh, the research that you're going to do when you do get pregnant, and who you might want to look after you, and what the best best path feels like. You don't have to take the path that somebody else has chosen for you. Epic. I think we're done here. We did it in one episode. I thought we might have talked a little bit more, but you just nailed out the research. Research That was very research heavy, but I think it needs to be. Totally. We will see you in the next episode. Of the Great Birth Rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) Epic. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right. <laughs>